If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Looking back at the 2008 to 2010 recession, we know that most nonprofits fared reasonably well in the first year. The second year of the recession, however, charities really felt the pinch when additional rounds of government stimulus didn't come through and also when long-term unemployed donors found themselves no longer able to give. In order to survive, In that recession, many organizations found themselves having to take a good, hard, long look at their real estate. They had to find ways to reduce some of their expenses, and for most organizations, occupancy, and that's rent or mortgage, utilities, maintenance, etc., is often the second highest line item in your budget. For some organizations that are really facility heavy, it is the highest line item in the budget. Today, we are joined by Paul Wolf, an established leader in the field of real estate with more than 30 years of development, brokerage, and nonprofit consulting experience. He co-founded Denim Wolf Real Estate Services in 1998, which takes a mission-first approach to real estate. And let me share with you listeners, they do this by helping nonprofits buy and sell real estate, as well as plan for and implement real estate development projects. I do also have to say, I know I kind of started this off saying, oh, a lot of organizations are trying to find ways that they can cut expenses. There are a few organizations, maybe 10, 15, or 20% of organizations out there that are not going to feel this pinch in the second year of the recession. And for those organizations, there will undoubtedly be some real estate deals. This is true whether you want to lock in a great rental rate or if you're interested in finally buying that permanent home for your organization. And Paul believes that as you're thinking about real estate deals, whether that's upsizing or downsizing, our real estate as nonprofits must work for us and our missions. He also advocates that every transaction support the organization's short and long-term goals. You might be thinking, Dolph, these are 
all lovely ideas, but how do I go about doing this during a crisis? Maybe that crisis is COVID. Maybe it's a loss of funding that makes it more difficult for you to pay rent, much less move. Maybe it's a landlord telling you that you have two months left to move. And maybe it's all of these things at one time, the perfect trifecta. So today, Paul is going to help us figure out how to mitigate real estate expenses during crisis, take advantage of real estate deals, and make the best decisions for our organization. Hey, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dolph. Nice to be here. I am so thrilled you're here. And I also just have to share to listeners, this is the first podcast recording session of the day. You know, we often batch the podcast. And so we'll record six episodes in just one day. Paul's is the very first of the day. We had some technical issues, which delayed us by about 25 minutes. And Paul, I can always tell the true soul of a guest by when we have technical issues. Some people flip out, they get angry or anxious. Paul, you rolled with it. You are exactly the person that we want in a crisis. Thank you very much. And speaking of crisis, I understand that a while back there was an organization that kind of had a crisis in terms of they had to move in less than 90 days. Uh, yes, this is true. This is a, a while ago. It's actually New York City Opera, a very uh, well-known institution who had been in Lincoln Center for about 35 years, and they were essentially given 89 days to vacate. And that is everything. That is 35 years worth of shoes and wigs and some costumes and all their offices. Uh, it, it was it was quite a challenge. Can you share a little bit about why they only had 89 days? That's less than three months. It is. I, I believe there was some issue with essentially the landlord being Link Inc., Lincoln Center Incorporated. Um, there, there were some internal questions at the time, but they, they basically were given 89 days. They had to get out, I believe, by the end of the year. Uh, and I have to say that that that, um, that rush really motivated them to be extremely careful and diligent about their decision-making process, about their governance, about what was really a priority for them. Wow. So what were some of the things they went through as part of that decision-making process? I think probably the hardest thing they had to do was getting the board and management to agree that we don't have time for this standard uh, review and approval process. So we, we took them through a very brief process to establish what are the non-negotiables in this relocation, in this move? What are the things that we cannot give up? And we said, write those things on the top of every piece of paper so that every decision that comes up, uh, you compare against those objectives, those non-negotiables, and make sure that those govern what you're going to do going forward. And it meant that a lot of people had to give up some level of control and trust that the point person was going to represent those non-negotiables well. And, and press us through the process, uh, which we were able to do. And literally, we moved in on the 89th day. Wow. And help me understand, I, I know sometimes New York real estate is at a peak and sometimes it's at a lower level. Was this at a point when New York real estate was at its peak or was it a little bit lower? No, this was this was a time when it was, I will say more, um, I'll say it, to the extent there's an average in New York, it was more of an, of an average time. Uh, we did have some options, but very few landlords were willing to work with us that quickly, uh, mostly because we also had to do a fair bit of work and the offices had to be able to accommodate um, at least one grand piano, which is not an easy thing in a New York office. I've done a good little bit of work in New York and I've worked with organizations that have had to move, not representing them around real estate, but in other matters. And I will say it is really impressive to find any office space that's not a gazillion dollars a year that will accommodate 
a grand piano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, and, and I have to say that the landlords actually were very helpful, but only because we were very clear uh, upfront saying these are the parameters and please don't waste our time. If this is not something you can do, then don't talk to us. But the, I mean, frankly, the, the organization itself behaved extremely well because they were, they were um, rigorous in how they managed the whole preparation, the move, the packing. We essentially had to hire the movers the second day on the job in preparation because they had so many things to move. Um, but it really was that streamlined process the, the unanimity of, of focus of this is what we have to do, uh, but really was able to bring everybody together uh, to move quickly. And just to be clear, you were hiring movers the second day on the job before you even had an idea where the opera was moving to. Yes, and that's largely because they had so much stuff <laughs> and it wasn't all going to the office. Some of it had to go off site, but we, everything had to be out in 89 days. So we had to figure out the people, the furniture, and then a lot of 35 years worth of stuff that supported the op. Wow. What were some of the other hurdles that you encountered? Obviously, it's difficult to get landlords, brokers to respond in New York, and we all sort of know that. And New York, even at average times, it's often difficult to find a place that's appropriate that meets all of your criteria. What were some of the other big hurdles that you all faced? Probably the, the biggest issue is financial, because some landlords saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of the organization. They said, sure, we can move quickly, but it's going to cost you. Um, and we had to be um, attentive to the dollars, but that couldn't be the only thing guiding our decision-making process. Uh, it was not just about affordability. It had to be affordable long-term sustainable, but they, it also had to meet these other criteria, which was not only to accommodate a grand piano, but also for adequate sound attenuation to minimize any sound transfer between offices. We had work to be done in the office, so the landlord had to have the capacity to move fairly quickly. I mean, frankly, in those situations where there is pressure, inevitably the biggest challenge is internal. And we were able to streamline the internal issues up front to, to minimize those consequences. Didn't mean that we didn't have some bumps along the way. Didn't mean we still didn't, we narrowed down the choice to a couple of different spaces and there wasn't immediate agreement from all parties involved at which was the right space. But again, m managing the internal process up front, establishing those initial conditions for how to move forward was critical. Mm. So help us understand for organizations that are just having a more routine move. Obviously, 90 days is a really short period of time. How much time should they be planning in terms of starting the process? As with so many things in real estate, it depends. It depends on if it is just an office space or if it is what we would call venue dependent, which would be, say, a performing arts organization or a healthcare organization or perhaps education. Um, those are very different. For a straight-up office space, where you have a fairly generic requirement and you can move into an existing or um, generic fit out, it's probably just four to six months. If you're doing a whole new fit out from scratch, it could easily be nine to 12 months. If you have a very unique requirement, high ceilings, wide columns, which will make it very difficult to find, the search itself could take six to 12 months before the, before the design and construction even begins. So I don't know how helpful that is to say such a wide range, but it really is very dependent on the organization itself uh, and what matters most to them. That is incredibly helpful. So it almost sounds like if your organization is thinking it may have a move sometime in the next 18 months to two years, it should go ahead and have a conversation with a broker and just get a sense based on its needs and its desires, 
how far in advance it should be planning? Um, definitely. And I mean, we're huge believers in planning. It, it underpins everything we do at Denim Wolf. The planning is, is the most important thing first to establish those initial conditions. And sometimes the best planning is with a broker. Sometimes it's with a, a project manager. We also do project management owners rep work where you help organizations plan for the, the physical aspects of your real estate. Sometimes you bring in an architect. If you're going to be a performing arts space and you're going to require, say, um, superior acoustics, understanding upfront what those drivers are becomes critical. We built an opera center a number of years ago and for a superior, an acoustically superior space, they required a 22-foot ceiling. That doesn't exist in, in New York, certainly not affordably for a nonprofit. So we had to find a building that would let us remove a floor, remove the space between two floors to create a double height space, uh, which is achievable with enough notice. And this took us a very long time to find a willing landlord. And then it took a long time to actually cut out the, chop out the floor and then build the space. Um, but with adequate notice, you can accomplish that and, and, and many other creative solutions. Very cool. Now, I know a lot of our listeners are in their car or out jogging, and they're wondering a few things. The first, they're wondering, is this a time while we're at the precipice of a recession that they can be asking for concessions from their landlord? I mean, it, it is the question, and my, my phone rings all the time with that question. I mean, again, it does depend a bit, and different landlords have different capacity to accommodate a request. We're seeing a lot of people requesting assistance and getting a rent deferral. So you can reduce your rent for the next three months, but then pay it back over the following 12. Very rare is somebody getting a rent abatement with a true reduction in rent. But if you approach your landlord as somebody who you're trying to partner with to figure this out together, we are seeing quite a lot of landlords be accommodating. The challenge is when you have um, a fairly new owner of a property, somebody who purchased a building within the past five, 10 years, five years say, they are often, they purchased it predicated on an increase in rent. And they're going to have a harder time accommodating any kind of reduction than a landlord who's owned a building for a long time. If they have a low basis in the building because they purchased it 20, 30, 40 years ago, they're often more able to meet the market and be accommodating. And we're seeing that in New York, definitely, where some of the older owners are, can be more, more helpful. Um, but I would definitely say the first call should be to your landlord to explain that you are in a difficult situation, to explain that you're looking for, for help where you can get it. Who is the best person to make that call? Is it the chief executive? Is it the CFO? Or is it the broker who initially helped you get into that space? So again, I think it, it depends. Um, oftentimes, particularly for smaller organizations, we encourage them to call the landlord directly and probably the, the, the executive director to say, look, I'm reaching out to you because we're in trouble. A lot of landlords will ask for proof of that. They'll want to see that your revenues are down. They want to see that like in New York, you can't go to your office for a long time. We, they want to see that that has impacted your, your income. But if you go yourself, I think it feels more genuine, less contrived. That doesn't mean you don't want consultants or brokers helping you navigate those negotiations. Um, but I do think that the first outreach should be direct. For larger organizations, larger institutional organizations, you might actually want to have an outsider, be it your broker or your lawyer, reach out first, uh, mostly because those become more complicated negotiations. And for those organizations that are going to have an outsider like a broker, 
reach out first? Should they anticipate paying the broker and to renegotiate the lease or what does that transaction look like? Uh, again, it's a great question. If this is a short-term accommodation and we are doing this with some of our, our clients, um, we don't charge for that. That's just to get on the phone and try to help them uh, figure out a short-term solution. If part of the solution is we want to extend our lease and uh, negotiate a lower rent, we want to get out early and move someplace else. If there's a long-term solution being contemplated, then the broker should be compensated by the landlord, either this the one you're with if you extend the lease or the new landlord if you relocate. That doesn't mean that landlords won't necessarily agree to pay. No landlord's going to pay for a, um, a lease uh, shortening. Uh, so you would probably have to pay your broker at that point. Um, but short-term solutions really should just be, um, I mean, a broker should not charge you for that to help to, to defer your rent for a, a few months. But if you're extending your lease or relocating, then the broker will, will need to get paid at some point. And what about those organizations that are looking out and they're saying, okay, we used to have 4,000 square feet of space. We've somehow been able to have two-thirds of our staff work from home. We think even when normal times return, we're not going to have all of our staff in the office. We only need 2,000 square feet of space from this point forward. How do they have those conversations with their landlords? Well, before you get to the landlord conversation, you have to have those internal conversations, the internal planning which is complicated. And we are, again, helping several organizations with this now. We had one nonprofit that moved into an office space February 1st, beautiful custom fit out. And now they're saying half the staff wants to continue to work from home even when they come back. What do they do with their beautiful new space? And the reality is in their circumstances, they have a number of um, offices, private offices, which I think will be um, adequate but they're going to want to socially distance, have more space between the open area, the workstations. So they're actually going to reduce how many people can sit in the open area anyway for better separation between the staff. So in their case, they're going to be able to accommodate, um, and we're still working on the plans, fewer people in the office with greater distancing that also allows people to work from home. But this issue is affecting absolutely everybody in the city. We have a number of larger organizations who are now contemplating uh, when they grow in the future to grow remotely, to hire people in other cities where their salaries are less and office space might be less expensive. And they're saying we're definitely going to need less office space. And if they have a lease coming up, then they're waiting to renegotiate at that point or to relocate. But if they have five, seven years left on their lease, it does require a very complicated conversation with the landlord. But landlords today are also worried. They're worried they're not going to be able to maintain their revenue stream. So if you go to them in advance and say, I'm going to need to pull back on my square footage and here's what I'm looking to do, they don't want to lose you. They don't want you to stop paying rent. They're going to want to figure something out with you. And just to put it in perspective, the vast majority of landlords have mortgages of their own, right? Oh, without question, yes. And so the landlord is also probably thinking, well, if I don't get this rent money, I'm going to have a difficult time paying my mortgage, and then the building goes into receivership. Absolutely. And also, if they don't get their rent, they can't pay real estate taxes with the with cities and, and states depend on as well. Absolutely. Now, let's flip this around, because we do know that some organizations will fare better during the recession, and some organizations are heading into the recession with significant cash reserves, which you can kind of think of as a war chest for the recession. 
for those organizations, what are some of the deals they should be on the lookout for over the next year to 18 months? Uh, Again, we're seeing this as well. Our mantra is mission leads, real estate follows. So in all things, we, we encourage people to support their mission. And we have another saying, we say you should be intelligently opportunistic. So don't be opportunistic just because you can be. It has to work. It has to make sense for you. It has to support your mission. Well, we're encouraging those groups that are fortunate enough to be in strong position right now. What we're encouraging them to think about is helping some of their peer organizations. Years ago, we did this with a number of groups where we helped create shared space projects where a single entity that has greater capacity could essentially take on additional space at cheap rents and then bring other organizations into it to help them essentially get a foot in the door. Maybe you have common um, conference rooms or a common pantry or in some cases common rehearsal space so that you're, you're reducing the overall burden on real estate. And also a consortium is a tremendously powerful entity for advocacy, for fundraising, a funder sees I can write one check and help 20 organizations instead of just one makes a big difference. So we are encouraging those strong organizations to look at being leaders within their within their sector, how they can help their peer organizations, hopefully mission aligned, because um, there are going to be cheap rents out there. There are going to be opportunities to purchase properties. But again, we always caution, please plan the hell out of it first. It has to support your mission. Um, A lot of people get excited about real estate by itself, uh, and we often want to talk people off that ledge to say it's, uh, again, make sure that the real estate is is, is supporting uh, what your core mission is. I am so glad you said that because I have seen so many nonprofit organizations that just think to themselves, if we can just raise the money and get into this 10,000 square foot building that we're going to own everything will change. We're going to build it and they will come. And in reality, they're not ready to own a place. And the place almost, literally almost sinks the organization. That's exactly right. Uh, And way too many organizations don't do the planning. There's a a famous story in New York, which I I won't uh, name specifically, where they literally um, had a brand new building built for them because they were so excited. They raised some capital. They turned the lights on and they almost went bankrupt immediately because they hadn't done the work to look at what the operating costs were going to be. And this long-term organization, their electricity bill in the first month was higher than their total occupancy cost in the previous iteration of their building. There's a tremendous burden that comes with ownership, and you do not enter it lightly, and you have to do the planning, and not just how do I cover the, the capital cost, but how do I make it sustainable for the long term? And you should run those numbers 5, 10, 15 years out without question. And I will also say for those organizations looking at moving into a building one of the, that they own, one of the biggest mistakes that I often see organizations make is not setting aside funds for system replacement. And so they think, oh, it's just non-cash depreciation. It's not a big deal. What they fail to understand is if you own your own building and the HVAC goes out, that might be a quarter million dollar improvement and you're not going to have the cash to do it. That is exactly right. And we always say that you should raise enough money to at least plant um, some seeds for what we call a reserve fund. And then you have to put in a deferred maintenance account. So every year we encourage groups to put in a line item and expense that they add money into that account. So it'd be at $2, $3 per square foot every year. So that by year 10, when that AC system needs replacement, you have a, uh, uh, you have some funds set aside and those things absolutely happen. Deferred maintenance, 
happens to every building. You just have to be prepared for it. And as I've always thought about it, a good way to think about it is if you are viewing your non-cash depreciation as the funds that you need to put into your reserve account for your building, you're probably going to be okay because you're probably putting about 3% away every year. And in 10 years, you're going to have 30% of what you've already put into the building because things are going to start to break down. I think that's excellent advice. That makes a lot of sense. One of the other things I heard you say, and I just want us to unpack it a little bit, because I've also seen some organizations do this very successfully, which is they move into a space that's maybe a little bit or a good bit bigger than what they need, but they bring some smaller partners with them. Um, Yes, but of course, there's always a but. So we do not encourage organizations to take more space than they need and then take on the burden of trying to find subtenants after the fact. Because now you have to carry all that space unless and until you find somebody else to to come in. And now you're playing developer. You have what we call developer risk. But if you go into a situation with your partners already locked in, you already have commitments, you have contracts, you have the capacity lined up. That's a different story. So when I say I'm suggesting um, a consortium to an organization, that wouldn't be take 20,000 square feet, occupy five and, and hope for the rest to come in. I would try to get as much time as possible on a space to make the decision as you're assembling the people to come in behind you. When we did this almost 20 years ago now for a, a theater organization that, that ultimately built a consortium of, of 25 theater-related organizations, we spent six months uh, with uh, an option to lease the space from the landlord, but talking to dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations to make sure they were ready, they had capacity, We made them post some cash, small amounts up front to demonstrate a commitment. We made them get board letters indicating that they were definitely going to come forward because the risk is too great. Real estate should never compromise or jeopardize your mission. So for the lead organization in that case, we were extremely cautious and they would not commit to the lease for the entire space until everybody else signed on as their subtenants. That is just such a smart idea. I love that. And as I think about having partners that come with you, there's a couple things I think about. One is you talk about developer risk and it's not just developer risk of having maybe to carry that space when you move into it. It's also the risk of if there's a bad year, you're now the landlord. They're going to come back and ask for concessions from. They absolutely are. And that's particularly difficult now. If you're the lead entity in one of your peer organizations, somebody in your space is having trouble the expectation is that you're going to be particularly accommodating to them. But in reality, you have bills due as well, and you have to pay your expenses. And it puts this unfair burden on you as the landlord in that case, which is also why we recommend in those situations creating, again, a reserve fund as you're doing your initial fundraising to cover at least some aspect of of those potential uh, risky situations. I love that idea. Are are there any other ways that organizations can mitigate some of their risk in having smaller partners part of a consortium? Um, I I mean, I think that when, when these things get put together, inevitably there's public support, and there really should be public support because... Uh, Again, preservation of mission, preservation of programs. These nonprofits do good in the communities that they're in, and the government should want them to succeed. So hopefully, as you're building support for your project, it's public sector, it's private philanthropy, maybe even corporations, if you can get some sponsorship. That's very hard these days. But to, to use the opportunity to build that momentum for fundraising support, because then you have partners for the long term. And I think that makes a big difference. And also, every one of these cases that I have seen for a successful shared space project essentially is, is precedent setting and inspires others 
to look for a, a similar opportunity. And I mean, there's a readiness for participants in a process like this that you need to achieve. So not everybody is a good partner. We always say most of us haven't had roommates since college. It's not always a great, a great situation. This can't be a roommate situation. You have to have very clear contracts, very clear expectations of what those relationships will be. And you have to establish those up front. So again, you tell the organizations, if you want to be part of this consortium, that would be fabulous. Here are the rules and regs. And I think that it's helpful to have that level of clarity. I could not agree more. It's so much easier to figure these things out before you move in together and you like each other than after you move in together. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Paul, I am so grateful that you've come on today. In looking over your client list, I noticed, and I'm going to kind of spitball it here, that between 30 and maybe 45% of your clients, if not more, are performing arts organizations. So my immediate question for you, this is our off the map question. It's an opportunity for listeners to get to know you a little bit better. You clearly have a strong love for performing arts. And I understand that at one point you were a performing artist yourself. I think artist might be a bit of a stretch. Um, I've certainly always enjoyed uh, the theater in particular, but just the quick story is that when I was in um, high school, I loved theater. I wanted to be in the musical, but candidly, I'm, I'm tone deaf. So I was put in the production because they needed more people, but I was not allowed to actually use my voice. I had to mouth the words and the director's criticism of me, of the, of the, cast used to be, none of you looks like you're singing. Only Paul looks like he's singing. And I know he's not because we don't let him sing. <laughs> but I'm a very good audience member. <laughs> I, I love that. Like you, I am also tone deaf and I love to sing and I sit in the audience and keep it to myself. Exactly. exactly. But I'll tell you when I'm alone and I have the headsets in, I can jam it out. I do Hamilton as well as Lynn Emanuel does. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Having recently seen it again, um, I, I will make no comment, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, clearly I don't. I don't at all. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, you can learn more about Paul and Denim Wolf Real Estate Services at their website, denimwolf.com. Visiting their website will also give you an even better idea of the work they do and what they can do for your nonprofit. They recently expanded their website, so there is so much great information and so many good resources that you can find there. So make sure you click on their News tab, and you will find a glossary of real estate terminology and webinars as well that you can attend. Obviously, some for some organizations, there's risk right now. For other organizations, there is opportunity. And if you are interested in mitigating your risk or seizing on any of those opportunities, this is a website that you absolutely need to visit. Also, Paul will be speaking at the Rooftops Conference hosted by New York Law School's Center for Real Estate Studies later this year on October 30th. The Rooftops Conference is an annual symposium that brings together nonprofit and commercial real estate communities. And I have to say, whether you are in New York or Seattle or Topeka or anywhere else, this is a great virtual conference for you to attend if you have any interest in moving forward on increasing your real estate presence or decreasing the amount of space you've got. 
And of course, it is completely virtual this year, so you don't even have to get on a plane. You can sit in the comfort of your home office and participate. Now, at this conference, Paul is going to be speaking about the partnership potential between nonprofits and real estate developers or owners. Since these great opportunities are often obscured in so many ways, this is an important session for you to attend. Now, let me just share with you, the conference's URL is a pretty hefty one. I am not going to read it out here because it's going to take about 90 seconds to read. But if you either go to Paul's website, denimwolf.com, or my website, successfulnonprofits.com, we will have a link to the conference there. Hey, Paul, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much, Dolph. This was a lot of fun. I, I appreciate being, uh, being on. So listeners, if you were just belting out your favorite Hamilton song and missed the resources or Paul's URL, no worries. You can just visit me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com and we will have all of those links right there and ready for you. And while you're on our website, please take a few minutes, just four or five, to fill out our listener survey. We want to make sure our content stays relevant and useful to you. And let me just share with you, we have already started to source guests based on some of the things that listeners have shared with us in the survey. So please click that link and share your thoughts with us. You will help make the podcast a better podcast and more relevant to you. Also, while you're at our website, take a look at our tactical planning services. Let me just share with you that at this point in time, a strong tactical plan, a 12 to 18 month plan, will better position you to take advantage of some of the awesome opportunities and mitigate some of the pretty formidable risk so that you have an even stronger organization as the recession ends. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.